Hey everybody, welcome to story time by What? You really want me to fucking read this? Yeah, but this sucks. Story time with Mike Freeland? What the fuck is that? It's fucking terrible. Hey everybody, let's get our milk and cookies and have story time with Mike Freeland. That fucking blows. Think of something good. History of hardcore. Or how about this book club sucks? Like, oh wait, 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 wait. I got it. I got it. I got it. Here we go. You ready? You ready for this shit? Uh-uh. Hey everybody, welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeman. See? Simple, fucking perfect. Gotta be fucking complicated. Everybody's gotta get cute with their fucking name. All right, you hardcore zealots, you've asked for it. We are going to deliver Mike Freeland here from Front Row Material with a brand new program that I'm going to be hosting called A History of Violence. So we teased about it on the main program with Jerry and Mikey that we were going to start a book club. And obviously the jokes went back and forth about a book club and Oprah's got a book club. Now Mike Freeland wants to have a book club, whatever. But you know what? I'm really excited about this project because it's something that I feel like a lot of fans are really going to benefit from. You know, we've heard a lot of the shoot interviews and, and they're all over YouTube. And I got a lot of respect for the people who sit down and do those because they're stories that you're just not going to get anywhere else. But I also feel like there's probably a lot more stories that are embedded in the pages of some of these really well-written books that we can benefit from and that we can learn about and we can educate ourselves as wrestling fans, specifically when it comes to the genre of ECW. You know, ECW was seven years, but really the roots of ECW go even further than that and the influences of ECW go even further than that. So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and read Hardcore History, The Extreme Unauthorized Story of ECW, written by Scott E. Williams. We're going to be going chapter by chapter, so just to let you know what to expect, we'll be releasing new episodes for each chapter. And then what we're going to do is I'm going to go ahead and reach out to you guys, and then you can reach back out to me on social media, and let me know what kind of questions you have after you hear what we talked about in a particular chapter. Would love if you guys would read along as well. Um, like I've mentioned before, you can get the book on your Kindle, you can get it on your phone, you can get it at Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Amazon, eBay, you name it, you can get the book. So Scott E. Williams is the individual who wrote this book. This book came out in 2006. So Scott is an award-winning wrestling columnist and criminal justice reporter. In addition to writing this book, uh, he's got several other books that he's worked on as well. He's worked on a Terry Funk book. He's worked on uh, a book with uh, Bill Watts. So there's some things that we're going to talk about as well that kind of weave all of this together. But it's a great story. It's a great book. I do feel like I'm going to reach out to some other people and get their opinions on each of these chapters. Because a lot of people are quoted in this book as well. So it's great to come out and talk to the people who had firsthand account when they sat down with Scott to go ahead and, and put this book together. So let's go ahead and let's jump right into it. Chapter 1. And it was a big one. It was a great, great early introduction to what ECW is. So ECW really, before it became ECW, it was called Tri-State Wrestling. And Tri-State Wrestling was run by a man by the name of Joel Goodhart. 
Now, Joel realized that there was a niche inside the wrestling industry that was void, that there was no one filling that. Of course, you had the World Wrestling Federation. You had World Championship Wrestling. You had some smaller independent promotions as well, but there really wasn't something that was stable in the Northeast that a lot of fans could go to participate in and really enjoy a consistent product. And that's where he decided, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and do this. So it all started in the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. And I think before we even talk about wrestling fans, I think you need to talk about fans in Philadelphia in general. These fans were rabid. I mean, some of the most demanding sports fans anywhere in the United States. I mean, they threw batteries and snowballs at Santa at Veterans Stadium. They are the type of fans that they know what they want, and they're going to let you know. And I think that is almost the perfect setting for what would become ECW, because when we really talk about ECW, one of the biggest things that I think I remember from the product are the fans. I mean, of course, you're going to remember the matches. You're going to remember the names like Sandman and Raven and Tommy Dreamer and Terry Funk and the Pitbulls and Taz. But, you know, I think a big thing is the fans. And when you watched ECW, the fans were such a huge part of the overall presentation, whether it be their chanting of you fucked up or she's a crack whore or bringing in the different weapons as well. So we're going to kind of get into that. We're going to peel back the layers, if you will. ECW is kind of like an onion. So each chapter we go through, we're going to peel a little bit more back. But let's kind of get back into it. Oh, by the way, I'm going to go off on some tangents here as well. So just kind of bear with me and, and keep in mind those are going to those are going to happen. So in Philadelphia, Joel really wanted to create a wrestling promotion. Joel was a wrestling fan, and he had the money. Joel was very successful in the insurance business. So Joel had some money, he had some capital, and he decided he wanted to start something he was calling Tri-State Wrestling. So Tri-State Wrestling was comprised of Philadelphia, New Jersey, and Delaware. So he wanted to go ahead and start running shows in the Northeast on a quarterly basis. So what he wanted to do is he wanted to run four major spectacular shows a year. So some of the shows had names like Gory Gory Hallelujah. That wasn't a real big audience that came to these shows in the beginning, but they were very loyal and they were very dedicated. A lot of Joel's shows were booked with a lot of top talent, a lot of stars that you know, fans would, would recognize, and there was a lot of independent stars that were pretty popular in the Northeast, so Joel was trying to take advantage of that. He was trying to find ways to make his shows as profitable as possible, and at least that's what we were led to believe in the beginning, and to try to garner as many people as possible. So, for example, he had a show he ran on March the 2nd of 91. It drew about 1,700 fans, and the gate was uh, almost $33,000. His main event was Terry Funk and Jerry Lawler, a match where the fans were the Lumberjacks. And this uh, card also had a match between Cactus Jack and Eddie Gilbert. So right off the bat, you can tell that Joel's not really messing around. Joel wants to make sure that his shows are star-studded and that they are packed with names that wrestling fans, you know, is synonymous with being very, very well-known and being very successful in the business. There were other names on that card like Ivan Koloff, 
the Sheik, Abdul the Butcher, Manny Fernandez. But see, the one thing that we're going to talk about when we talk about Joel is, yes, Joel is a wrestling fan. Yes, Joel does have money. But the problem is, is that Joel would spend money uh, very loosely. He would bring in different stars, but the problem with bringing in these stars is a lot of them came with a pretty heavy uh, fee to show up on his shows, which we'll get to, but really did start to cut into his bottom line. And we're going to find out, was Joel really focused on the bottom line, or was he more focused on just the entertainment aspect? And who was he really trying to entertain? We'll get into that. So his cards were impressive. He actually ran the uh, Philadelphia Convention Hall when he ran his shows, and it has been since demolished. But he ran them, and he got his crowds, once again, in the beginning, not very big. A wrestling fan named Bob Barnett is quoted in the book. He's a, an attorney from California. He actually went to Joel's March 2nd, 1991 show. He landed in Philadelphia and then went to the... Uh, went to the hotel he was staying at. Well, Bob tells a really funny story about when he's going to check into the hotel, someone approaches him and he could not believe what was happening. So the original Sheik, which obviously is the uncle to Sabu, who we will get to him as well. There's a lot of things that have to do with ECW and hardcore wrestling that Sabu was, was very much an innovator and obviously so was his uncle, the original Sheik. But Bob tells the story about when he finally got to the hotel, the original Sheik came up to him and uh, basically told him, we're going to follow you to the arena. Uh, and if you don't, you're going to get cut. And, and Bob said, looking back now, I can kind of laugh at that. But uh, he didn't think it, it was just someone playing their character. And we're going to talk about how the original Sheik was more than just a character. He lived the gimmick in a lot of ways. So he basically said that he got into his rental car and he went ahead and he led the way for the Sheik to make it to the building. Didn't even know Bob, just randomly came up to Bob. But the person that was driving the car the Sheik was in, yep, it was his nephew, Sabu. So that's kind of our first indication on the type of talent that Joel was bringing in here. So... The shows, like we said, were big names, but a lot of the stars knew that they could contact Joel and they could probably get a pretty hefty payday. Not to say that wrestling um, stars at that time thought that he was a pushover or that he was just a mark and that they could get a lot of money out of him, but uh, there are stories that have come out that basically say that they, they got more money than they thought they were going to get. I mean, think about it from this perspective. If you normally have a, a booking fee of 300 bucks for a show, you know, you ask for 500 and you get it, well, word's going to go around that obviously, you know, hey, ask for a little bit more, you're probably going to get that. Now, the other thing with some of Joel's shows are he was kind of upping the ante with a lot of them, and he was promising stars that sometimes didn't show up, and I think that really hurt some of his shows as well. You know, when you promote somebody and you tell the fans that that person's going to be here and they no-show, that's that's not good. And I think that's the first no-no when it comes to wrestling is if you say you're going to be somewhere, you need to be there because it's going to hurt your bottom line. 
Joel also started running more violent shows, uh, bloodier shows, and he was trying to really get the, the shock factor going. Well, he did get kind of a shock factor here. He had his first run-in with one of the talents. So he and Missy Hyatt, who Missy Hyatt was a blonde bombshell in wrestling. If, if you're not familiar with Missy Hyatt and maybe all you know is Sable or all you know is Sonny, in the 90s um, and even in the late 80s, Missy Hyatt was probably one of the most knockout women in professional wrestling. Anyway, there was a show that Tri-State was running on May the 4th of 1991, and uh Missy and Joel got into a shouting match because Joel was actually selling pictures of Missy and making money off of her, and she was not told about this. And this really, really got Missy upset, and she basically wanted to know why he was making money off of her likeness in these photos, and she never really got an answer from Joel. But I think that kind of gives you yet another insight of, of what was really going on with, with Joel himself. Joel was a wrestling fan, but I think that when it came to working with the talent, he hadn't previously had any experience with that, so that was definitely something that was not going for him. So there was a May 4th show in Newark, and it had more big names. It had names like Eddie Gilbert and Adul the Butcher and Bam Bam Bigelow and Buddy Landell, and Terry Funk had gotten injured prior to the show, and he was not going to be able to wrestle. However, Joel continued to promote and advertise him. And I think once again, you know, we're starting to see some of the business tactics that Joel would implement as far as being able to get people there. So you have overpaying potentially for some stars and then obviously having a run-in with Missy. And I don't think it was really just a run-in. I think it was more of an ethical thing, selling pictures of Missy but not even telling her and pocketing the money and then booking Terry Funk. Terry comes to Joel and says, I can't work. He still advertises him to be there. Regardless, show drew about 300 people. So there was a September 21st show in Philadelphia. It drew about 1,500 fans for a gate of almost $2,800. So Tri-State was alive. Tri-State was obviously starting to make a little bit of a rumble, making a little bit of a name for itself. And it was starting to rise as up the ranks of the independent ladder. And there were some other guys that were also climbing the independent ladder, guys like Sabu and guys like the Sandman. Well, it's funny because backstage, the Sandman, who is known by everyone as Hack, was originally a surfer character back in the day. And Terry Funk has gone on record by saying that he gives the Sandman a lot of credit, and his real name is Jim Fullington, for reinventing himself and becoming the Sandman that we know today. The surfer gimmick really wasn't working. Um, in, in Terry's exact words, it left a lot to be desired. But when the Sandman actually decided to go ahead and first go out to the ring with a cigarette and then go out with a beer and be more of himself, that's when the Sandman's character eventually really started to get over. They were trying to, at the time... And this is the only thing that I can think of what would have motivated Joel in making the Sandman the surfer gimmick was because he needed a top baby face at the time. And Sandman had the bleach blonde hair. So did Sting. Sting and WCW had the bleach blonde hair. Hogan had the bleach blonde hair. 
they went ahead and billed him from Venice Beach, California. He wore bright colored tights. So in a lot of ways, it looked like Joel was trying to create his company face when it came to the Sandman. But unfortunately, some of that stuff just doesn't work. And with the Philadelphia fans, it did not work as all. So that's when I said that Sandman ended up reinventing himself and really starting to be more of his own. And I think with that being said, fans gravitate towards that. They like it when people are not trying to be something that they're not because you can see through that pretty quickly. Well, Tri-State Wrestling obviously had been spending a lot of money, as I said before, and it was trying to, to basically stay afloat from a financial standpoint. Well, as they're going ahead and doing that, another wrestling promotion is created, and that is Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Now, for those of you who may or may not be familiar with Smoky Mountain Wrestling, that's a promotion that was created uh, by Jim Cornette, and it was in Tennessee, Kentucky, they ran in Ohio, but Smoky Mountain Wrestling was his small independent promotion. Not to say that they were trying to compete with Joel. I think Smoky Mountain obviously had a little bit more credibility, but Needless to say, it's yet another promotion that is giving talent viable options as far as, as making money here. So Joel realized, started to realize that from a financial standpoint, there was more money going out than there was coming in. And he wasn't going to be in business for very long unless he really started to change things up. So as we are in 1991 going into 1992, Joel was trying to find ways to draw in bigger crowds so he could make more money at the gate. Joel ended up having a show, and uh, it was a radio show that he had in Philadelphia, and it was on WIP 610, and he would talk about wrestling, he would promote his shows, and he was letting people know that he had a big show coming up. It was a super card. And he was going to bring in a lot of guys. It was going to be a great atmosphere. It was going to be really, really fun. But at the end of the day, Joel was spending more money on bringing stars in, flying them in, putting them in hotels. And I think in a lot of ways, if I was trying to think how and why Joel was doing what he was, he knew that Smoky Mountain was around. He knew being in the Northeast, the WWF was a was a big deal. And he wouldn't be able to compete with them, but if he could somehow try to garner a portion of their audience by bringing in stars that may have been seen on WWF television, that would have helped him. But there's a lot of critics who said that Joel missed out on a huge revenue stream that he never did, in which was videotaping his shows. So when Joel was finally approached by this and said, hey man, why are you not videotaping your shows, you could obviously tape them and then mass produce them and sell them at your next show, just in case maybe people weren't there. Well, Joel came back and said that there was a leasing agreement that he had with the building that nothing would be recorded. It was not permitted. So that stream of revenue obviously was, was not going to be viable to them. Well, according to some insiders, and this, and this is a hard thing to say, but Joel sometimes would walk around backstage without a shirt on. He'd have a championship belt over his shoulder, and it was kind of looked upon as this is 
not the most professional if you're going to be running a company, you know, if you're going to be the person that's in charge, the talent's going to see this and, you know, some talent may not mind it and some talent may overlook that as long as they're getting a paycheck, as long as they're able to work. But I can honestly see where this would probably make some other talent think, what is this guy doing? Well, by the end of the year, unfortunately, even Joel had to realize that the writing was on the wall. Tri-State Wrestling was not doing so well, so they had to come up with another idea for a new revenue stream. And that was to sell season tickets. So they were selling these season tickets, and it was guaranteeing the loyal fans of Tri-State Wrestling the same seat if they were to come to the shows, which, you know, really sounded like a good idea, but... um it, it didn't really end up working out too well for him. So John Bailey, who we'll be talking about, and he's hat guy, he remembers hearing the news uh, of obviously having season tickets being offered, and, and he thought it wasn't a bad idea, and there was a lot of people who wanted to do this. But unfortunately, the fan base of Tri-State Wrestling just wasn't broad enough. I mean, even if you sold season tickets to the majority of your spectators, you're still not going to come up with all the money that you have going out the door with bringing in these stars for these quarterly shows. It was just, you're in the red too much. Well, Joel on his radio show uh, announced to the world that he was going to be calling it quits and that Tri-State would be out of business and that they were no longer going to be doing these uh, quarterly shows anymore. Interestingly enough, this was a week before they were going to have their next big super show, and um, that, that didn't happen. And Bailey said, I thought it took a lot of guts for Joel to go on the air and to openly admit to the wrestling fans and to be honest and tell them that it was over. Now, the other thing that Joel did was he kind of went on a shoot on all the fans and he did put some of the responsibility on the fans and he was a little frustrated with them as well for not showing up and supporting the product for what he believed was a really good show. I mean, in some ways I can kind of understand, you know, wanting to have people turn out and come to your show, but then on the other hand, I don't think you can be really mad at them because you didn't necessarily turn a profit because you were bleeding money. So Joel, Joel has to shoulder some of the burden for the company not working. Kevin Sullivan has actually gone on record by saying, you know what, I think that Joel Goodhart is overlooked often when it comes to the history of wrestling in Philadelphia because of what he did with starting Tri-State Wrestling, which eventually would become Eastern Championship Wrestling. And he said, you know what? I never heard from the guy after his last show. It's almost as if he just kind of vanished. Sullivan also went on to say that, you know, it's hard to be in this business full time. But if you're doing it part time, it's even harder. So I think a lot of wrestlers knew that he was trying to do this. But was he really doing it for a profitability standpoint? Kind of what we teased earlier when we first started the chapter or was he doing it more to serve himself? And I think being a fan's not a bad thing, but I think if you're looking at it from a fan perspective and you're just booking these shows to entertain yourself and to not make a profit, your company's not going to be in business very long, and any money that you do invest in your company is going to be lost very, very quickly. 
So Goodhart was not uh, was not doing so hot. He ended his radio show. He ended his wrestling promotion. And in 1992, something happened. In the ashes of what was Tri-State Wrestling, there were two people who decided, you know, maybe Joel's business acumen wasn't great, but I think he was on to something. And those two people, Todd Gordon and Bob Ortiz, those are going to be the names that carry us into Chapter 2 of this story. All right, that's going to do it. I will talk to you guys next time when Chapter 2 arrives. The rules.